ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, bonus time is here. That's right, you're listening to the Kill by Kill podcast. Greetings and salutations, internet. Welcome to the Kill by Kill podcast. My name is Patrick Hamilton. I am a supposed entertainment professional, only because I don't get paid to do anything else. And I get to talk to one of my favorite people in this entire world, at least on the internet, Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing, Gina? Well, I am not an entertainment professional. I am an entertainment amateur, but other than that, I'm I'm doing well. <laughs> uh, I'm excited for this episode. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research. I have a little page of notes here. I, I'm ready. I'm prepared. A little page of notes. Buckle up, campers. So we are filled to the brim with research. If by filled to the brim, we mean a little, quote unquote, page of notes from Gina, I will be relying on my faulty memory as we take this time in between our regularly scheduled podcasts to delve into the wild and woolly world of 3D movies in the 80s. And I suppose where we should start is the very beginning. It's a very good place to start if I learned anything from Broadway's musicals. And we should talk about why 3D came back in the 80s. Um, It was basically to kind of uh, deal with the issue of people not going out to the movies as much as they used to because of cable and... uh, and the, uh, the VHS boom, so much like in the 50s when they tried a lot of gimmicks such as 3D or um, with the William Castle movies like House on Haunted Hill, an actual model skeleton flying out over the audience, or um, if you ever heard of the movie The Tingler, the gimmick for that was mild electrical shocks in the, um, in the, uh, in the, in the theater seats. Because the idea of the Tingler was uh, that was a creature that would attach itself. I can't remember if it was the base of your skull or the base of your spine. And I think it was the base of the spine to essentially uh, just vibrate you to death, <laughs> and, um, and, and and you know to make you know to to uh, you know let the audience get in on that horrifying sensation of getting a light massage. <laughs> um, they had a uh, little uh, electrically wired seats in some theaters. Well, in the 50s, the idea of getting a light massage was so frightening to so many white people that it literally would just chill them to the bone. I think the the hook, if I remember correctly, about the Tingler, and I'm recalling when I saw it on Elvira, Mistress of the Dark here locally on Channel 9, was that it fed on your fear. But if you vocalized, if you screamed... It would unattach itself. And the whole basis of this was to get audience members to scream, hence elevating the sort of audience experience of watching The Tingler. So sort of like an adult version of clapping, so Tinkerbell comes back to life in Peter Pan then? Exactly. Only more crass and craven. And you said, Gina, we've got cable and we've got VHS, uh, which are just soaking up all the available oxygen in terms of people's time for entertainment. And so Hollywood being the creature that it is, which is always learning the wrong lessons, (laughs) it reached back into its very tired bag of tricks and came up with 3D. 
3D is not something you can do at home, even though people have tried to do 3D at home many, many times. Uh, again, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark did it, I believe, uh, for one of the Creature of the Black Lagoon sequels. And so you you bring people in and you have to make that product. There is no 3D conversion at this moment in time. So you have to make 3D movies. And what is our first 3D movie to talk about tonight? I did arrange them chronologically because uh, the 3D boom only lasted about a year and a half from March 82 to November of 83. Okay. Um, the first of these was a movie called Parasite. Now I want to take a moment to point out to our listeners that um, Patrick and I in internet years, we're like nursing home age. We're ancient. So this is not something that I you know, just kind of looked up on the internet. I actually saw all of these movies. Well, okay, one I didn't, but I've seen all of these movies at some point when I was young. A couple of them in the theater. Among them, Parasite. So now, w- were you taken to Parasite by a parent? I or was. Or was this a drive-in situation? How did pa- this happen? Parasite, my mom loved horror movies, and I, I mentioned this, I think I mentioned this in our um, our opening episode, I had those kind of super liberal 70s parents who really did not monitor what I watched at all, mm-hmm. I mean, to a point where they probably should have at some point. I mean, once I became, I became a parent myself, I'm like, oh my God, why didn't anybody ever tell me no? Because I, I should not have watched a lot of these movies. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I saw Halloween in the theater and I was six thereabouts um i saw jaws i was even younger i yeah they i don't want to say they scarred me for life but they definitely had an effect let's say that probably you know school psychologists and teachers wouldn't have found to be a positive one but uh i digress that's for if i ever get a spot on the mental illness happy hour fingers uh, crossed fingers crossed but yeah parasite that was actually the first of these movies a lot of people would assume it's friday the 13th it is not that just happened to be the more most successful of them it was directed by charles band the founder of full moon features which uh Mm -hmm. is the production company responsible for such masterpieces as the puppet master series tracers mandroid uh, evil bomb, your demonic toys your your robot your, joxes your ginger dead man versus evil bong which is the the current series that's out now i, I don't recommend it I mean, even if you're a connoisseur of bad movies it's kind of of the the sharknado brand of bad movies where it's very self-aware of how shitty it is and and mm-hmm. that's yeah, you know, as opposed to say like Fateful Findings or Birdemic, which was you know, someone who thought that they were an artiste, you know, putting out their uh, their master project. This is just garbage and self aware garbage. Anyway, Parasite. Um, I definitely. I mean, I remember seeing this movie. I remember exactly one scene in it, and I was looking over the plot description on Wikipedia, and I do not remember any of what is described as happening in this movie i mean the only reason i remember that it was the first big starring role for demi moore 
is probably reading it somewhere later and saying, oh yeah, I saw that movie. I don't remember her in it, but I've seen that movie. Uh, have you seen Parasite? You know, I have seen it somewhere along the way. It doesn't make much of an impression. It's certainly of the vein of a great many alien ripoffs where it was this it grows inside of you and eats its way out sort of monster movie. Right, and that's that's the only the only scene I remember, and I'm, I'm assuming that it, it was probably intended to be the big 3D showpiece, like in Friday Thirteenth Part Three when uh, when Rick's head is crushed and his eyeball flies at the camera. That's that's like that's like the big showpiece, the part that everybody's going to remember, and just showing the miracle of 3D. And of course, it looks like garbage. In this, it was a woman's face in extreme close up, and it just like explodes and you know the parasite comes flying out at the at the camera you know undoubtedly to the shock and horror everybody in the audience i believe uh when we discussed it previously you described it as a burnt oven mitt with teeth (laughs) and i think that's very accurate for what it is it's not a miracle of design this is as basic a creature it's a slug with teeth that you can totally see someone is sticking their hand into it to make it move. And as delightful and engaging as that sounds when I say it out loud, it's even stupider when projected on a screen at 24 frames per second to give the illusion of movement. It just doesn't do anything. And it just seems like a very cheap cash grab aiming to get the most bang for being the first to the 3D block. Yeah, I mean, if you look over these these list of movies, all of them are either sequels or just very blatant ripoffs of other better movies. Um, just, I mean, some of them are just absolutely shameless. Um, like uh, the one I'm going to mention next. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to skip over, obviously, Friday 13th Part 3, which came out um, the summer of 1982, because we will, we will get to that later. Oh, we will hear all about that. Just... Um, Buckle your seatbelts for that, kids. And then the following uh, in January 1983 was, you know, as all the best movies come out in in January, um, is uh, a movie called Treasure of the Four Crowns. Uh Now, I love the trailer for this. It, It is, it looks like something, I mean, if you were to come up with just the, you know, the cheesiest mst3k worthy trailer for an adventure movie it it just it it looks like it looks like a parody of itself and i think the funniest part of it is that at the beginning it has the iron balls to compare it to you've seen aliens you've seen star wars you've seen close encounters but now you've never seen anything like treasure of the four crowns except you have because it was a movie called raiders of the lost ark (laughs) you have seen something like it and it's true it is unique unto itself in that it is so poorly put together that it makes friday the 13th part three look like godfather part two it is nuts how poor that film comes across i distinctly remember the snakes that would leap out of various pillars because there's this odd Raiders of the Lost Ark Indiana Jones meets Ocean's Eleven team that are all gathering to 
find these four elements of the the crown. You put it all together and you summon some sort of serpent god or some bullshit. And what it comes down to is snakes on strings, poke at you, poke at you, poke at you, 3D effects. And the very end, this is on YouTube, so we'll we'll try to tweet this out or at least put it on the Facebook page. The very end features one of the guys putting on the magical doohickey. Half of his face looks like undigested pizza. And then he shoots out sparks and flame balls, only they're not really flame balls. They're just uh, bars. They're fire bars with like little spoke uh, holes in them so that the gas comes out on wires. And they're just swinging back and forth near stunt people wearing black turbans from head to toe. And it goes on and on and on. And the music is so triumphant. Oh, my God. Can you believe those fire bars swinging on wires coming from this man's magical aura? Yeah, I can see the fucking wires. This is so stupid. It's absurd. And I just I, I, I love the hubris, the absolute chutzpah in the in the trailer to to try to say that this is this is something beyond star wars or aliens <laughs> that this it is brings, a new, it's a, a, you know just a you know a motion picture experience that you've never had before <laughs> and that is true it's just not a good experience <laughs> uh it brings to mind uh, mentioning charles band once again one of his features laser blast which, if you have not seen the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version, you can even watch it without. It's really entertaining bad. A lot of Eddie D's in action. And at, towards the very end, this teenager who has this l- stupid laser gun grafted onto his arm hitchhikes with some doofus in a pickup truck. And they pass a handmade Star Wars billboard. And he blows up the Star Wars billboard as to say... Fuck you, Star Wars. There's a new king in town. Like, have you watched your movie? That takes a lot of balls. And yet, it is that sort of uh, hubris that makes this elevated in terms of a really bad movie, that a good bad movie that you can enjoy. Uh, where, whereas, you know, Parasite's a slog, I think four crowns because it's half an Italian and half an English and neither half knows what the other is saying. <laughs> and I'm sure the crew was four different ways from Sunday. And I think that they described like the 3d as like super view or something like that. So they were, even, they were even trying to claim that it was, you know, a, a different, better type of 3d too which which no it really was as someone who sat in the theater watching it in glendale california on brand boulevard this is how memorable this experience was the same theater i saw the fly in the same theater that i saw ghostbusters in it was shit tacular (laughs) and i remember laughing at certain points in it okay what's next up to bat 
Um, next is May 1983's Space Hunter Adventure in the Forbidden Zone. This is another one that I remember seeing. I don't think I saw it in the theater. I probably caught it on cable. But again, I in uh, in preparing for this episode, I was reading the plot synopsis mm-hmm. on Wikipedia, and I'm like, what? That really happened? I mean, it's <laughs> way more elaborate than any B-grade sci-fi motion picture needs to be. Have you seen it? I know there was one 3D movie that's post-apocalypse that has Bull from Night Court in it. Yeah, that's and, a, that's Metal Storm. We'll, we'll, okay. get to, we'll get to that. So this is the one that has a pre-16 candles Molly Ringwald uh, and th- some sort of junkyard maze. That's the only thing. Molly Ringwald is the only part I can remember about it. I mean, it's it involves a plague and androids and mermaids and dragons and Michael Ironside is there with metal claw hands. How do how do I not remember a movie with Michael Ironside with metal claw hands? How, how does that not just reserve a spot in my brain forever? And and then I think the 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 most hilarious part is is Ernie Hudson is in it. And even though the movie takes place, I think in like the twenty second century, he's still playing a character named Washington because. <laughs> Because, you know, he's black, so of course they're always named Washington. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. And yeah. Look, I mean, and despite all of that, all I can remember is that Molly Ringwald was in it. That 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 is it. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I keep I'm realizing I keep mixing it up with another movie, not Metal Storm, but I, I don't even remember the name of this movie. It had Barry Bostwick in it. Oh, are you talking about uh, Megaforce? I am talking about Megaforce. That oh is it. Oh my god! How can you confuse this with Megaforce? <laughs> Megaforce. I mean, I mean, they all they all sound alike. <laughs> that's true. In terms of the way it sounds, they one hundred percent can be conflated with one another. And it but in terms of cinematic experience, Megaforce is unto itself. We're talking about the very same director. Who brought the Cannonball Run movies to life now has the his hands on the wheel of a giant franchise about a ragtag group of mercenaries who have flying motorcycles <laughs> that only fly at the very end of the movie in the worst version of blue screen you've ever seen in your entire life. Now, see, I'm and looking Persis at Persis Kambata is in Yeah, it. and I'm looking, I'm like, Persis Kambata, I'm like, are you sure, am I sure I'm not looking at the page for Warrior of the Lost World? All it's these, all the same movie. I was going to say, these are all the same movie. They're, they're all filmed in the same Italian or Spanish desert wasteland. And Megaforce is six have, ways from Sunday stupid. They all have, you know, bearded gentlemen in the, in the, in the, the lead role. You know, mostly lacking the charisma that is required for leading, for leading men in, uh, in action movies, except for Barry Boswick, who, who, because he comes up so often on stuff on my blog that, that he has a special place in my heart. Um, yeah. Well, he has but, a twinkle in his eye, and when he's in the right role, he absolutely sings. And if you're looking for something that has that je ne sais quoi of homoerotic militarism that's in <laughs> Top Gun, oh, do I have a supercon of Megaforce for you? Now, see, because how, now how is that not in 3D? I Because it ran over budget and... 
every, it cost millions and millions of dollars to wreck a bunch of cars. I think it, it was just outside of the run of that because, again, outside of Friday the 13th 3D, not many of these movies made enough money where everyone else is like, I got to hop on that money train. This was more like exploitation studios saying how can we milk this for a little extra edge it does heighten the experience whereas you don't you're not sitting there thinking you okay oh he's got a cigarette i bet he's gonna find a way to stick the cigarette in the camera oh here comes a cigarette oh boy (laughs) you know know, yeah i think the go-to maneuver for a lot of these movies was fireballs yeah. There were a lot of fireballs coming yeah, in. Yeah, things camp. on fire were always, yeah. like, you know, Friday the 13th, you've got a flaming poker, and it sort of reminds me, you've seen um, Waiting for Guffman, right? Yes. When he's talking about, um, I think he was in a musical version of Fahrenheit 451, <laughs> and uh, he said that, that the audience didn't like having fire, he said they didn't like having fire poked at them. You can't poke people in the face with fire. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that very quickly brings to mind one of our jobs was coming up with a special shoot for a TV show that was being ported over from England called Stacked. This version happened to star Pamela Anderson. And we came up with a special shoot for it to sort of get people excited. It was going to air during NFL games. And it was one part was her reading to what you think is a group of little boys, and it turns out to be grown men just staring at her boobs. And I'm very proud. And the other was her walking in in slow motion and everyone gawking at her because it was so out of place. And she hired one of her favorite fashion photographers to actually shoot it. And the, he smoked the entire set. So we come on to set, and you have this bookstore that every is just shrouded in mist like they're filming the fog inside (laughs) of there and i'm like what is happening like it's atmosphere the atmosphere is fahrenheit 451 you got a bunch of smoky books this is stupid later on uh pamela anderson stuck her boobs in my wife's face and Demand like I think this is gonna look cheesy, and I don't want to look cheesy. <laughs> and later she she came over and said, "Why didn't you say anything?" And I don't know about you, but the idea of Pamela Anderson sticking her boobs in my wife's face was so jaw dropping a concept <laughs> that to actually see it play out, I was at a loss for words. I'm sorry. And I just, I've been apologizing ever since. For all your hard work, I believe I watched an episode of that on a plane once. You know what? It got what it deserved, (laughs) to be honest with you. I believe they fired one of the lead actors from that show during that shoot, but shot him anyways. (laughs) And then at the end of it, they're like, this sucks. We're never going to use it. Hey, guess where I saw it again? The opening credits of the fucking show. <laughs> they hated it so much, it was the opening statement of every episode that aired all two seasons. <laughs> okay, enough about me and my entertainment problems. Let's move on to other people's entertainment problems. What's our next 3D catastrophe to discuss? Probably the only other one besides Friday the 13th that... Uh... Most people have seen, and that is July 1983's 
Jaws 3D. Oh, yes. Now, Patrick, I understand that um, your mother has an unreasonable dislike for uh, the rather harmless and benign Bess Armstrong. You want to talk about that? (laughs) She does. And I almost wish she was here to talk about it because it's one of the the craziest. I, I never see my mother aim her sarcasm at show business very much growing up. It was always, you know, back-talking people who were PTA members or, or someone at church. This was very deliberately aimed at Bess Armstrong, whom she hated with the brightness of a thousand suns. And watching it again recently, I'm almost on her side. Every time she kisses Des Quaid, she does so like this. Hi, honey. Every fucking time. <laughs> Like, she's greeted him. Like, they haven't been apart. And she's still... Every time... There's no sexual chemistry between these two very attractive people who are constantly trying to touch one another. They're attempting to have a a thin man sort of rapport with one another. And it does not work. Keeping with the the other two movies that... I, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, sort of end on a high note where, uh, you know, the survivors are sort of paddling back to, to the shore after defeating the uh, the shark. I, I just like that, you know, even though the, the the park that is their livelihood is probably going to be shut down and, and, you know, a bunch of people were brutally killed right before their very eyes, like, like, Bess Armstrong still lets out the fist pumping, ah! At the, yeah. the, at the end of the movie, it's just... It's well, the just dolphins a, are okay. That's the thing. The dolphins live. And, and that's just, yeah, all she cares about. I mean, fuck poor Simon McCorkendale. You know, <laughs> you know, fuck the guy that was working in the in the booth with uh, Louis Gossett Jr. and the other woman. You know, at least the dolphin, At least Sandy and Cindy are okay. Oh, those fucking dolphins. There's so much goddamn trouble. Um, They recently re-released Jaws three on blu-ray and you have to turn it to the very back to see that it includes the 3d version converted for 3d you know tvs and so i'm like well i have to watch it now so i did and it was a chore to say the least to get through what is one of the ugliest films I've ever seen. Occasionally, you'll have this magic hour sort of shot. The guy who is trying to weld the fence together. You're like, well, that looks like a a good look a movie. Why can't we watch that one? And (laughs) nope. It also has one of the worst 3D gags I've ever seen executed. Dennis. Did the the arm or the the, the fish head just float (laughs) Well, the fish head's bad, but at least the fish head, you're like, it, it just, it goes on too long. But the skeleton arm, Bess and Dennis are down there trying to determine where this shark might be. And they go down in a submarine and the camera just turns to this prop skeleton with his arm extended. And then you hear dubbed in voiceover Bess Armstrong go, whoa, oh, Dennis! Oh, okay. And the de- and the Dennis is like, oh no, 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 we, we we call him Jimmy or some bullshit. It's like this this hasn't even a fucking jump scare. It is Yeah, it's 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 also a movie that they attempt to marry 
3D with slow motion, and oh, and gosh. it does not. It it well, I should say it works to hilarious results because you've got that. I would say I would say it's reasonable to call it iconic now. Shot of the shark slowly floating towards the control booth, and I I didn't realize until many years later. Oh, it's supposed to be in slow motion. Okay, it's not because you know they just kind of put this model shark and they couldn't move it too fast. It's like well, oh, part of, it's part of be- what helps slow motion come across is movement. Now, when it cuts <laughs> to the group who are inside the control room, they're moving in sort of that blah 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 sort of slow motion <laughs> but when it cuts back to the shark it just looks like a very a kid's toy on a stick with no a, no flippers it, it, move the mouth doesn't move yeah it's got this little face on it you know <laughs> and um yeah, and it's also the, the the film quality is different like like as you say the the shots inside the booth they look like you know, 80s era slow motion. It's a little grainy. It's choppy. Mm. And then this one is just like clear as a bell. He's in the water floating very slowly. Yeah, it's just boot. a composite shot. And it it and, just doesn't work. Like Billy the singing bass is more lifelike than this fucking shark. And then, it some, is and, then bad. And, and then somehow it has gathered up enough steam and power to just headbutt its way into this glass control booth. Which they they say earlier on in the movie, it's like six, you know, feet thick, this fucking glass. It it makes no goddamn sense whatsoever. And then they have the gall to kill Simon McCorkendale. With the most, with a really unnecessarily brutal death. And, and I feel like, I feel like, that I think that the the idea in my, they had in mind was to kind of outdo Jaws in a lot of ways. So yeah, I mean, Quint's well, mission death, accomplished. Yeah, yeah, Quint's death was pretty brutal. It's sort of also they're starting to get into the idea that was really just taken and run down the football field on on Jaws: The Revenge. That the shark kind of is little smarter than sharks actually are. So he's torturing him essentially. <laughs> he is slowly crushing him to death. And and everyone is paying for some sort of previous sin. The Brody boys are paying for, you know, being the spawn of a certified shark killer from Amity Island. McCorkendale is paying for the sin of blowing up other sharks with grenades. And so his severed arm clutching a grenade is what saves the day in the end. If his undigested arm clutching a grenade isn't there, when the shark busts through an impossibly thick glass wall, well, SeaWorld would still be run by that shark to you, this you very day. You, you, it's not even his arm. He's like, it's like the shark didn't finish swallowing him. <laughs> it's like, how do you function with, I'm pretty sure sharks are no more able to function with food trapped halfway down their throats than humans are. But he, <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that little snack for later. I mean, he's not a chipmunk. He doesn't, they don't store 
their food in their in their cheek pockets. It's memorable in just just for the absurdity of you know, the the framing shot at the end with the uh, the shark's teeth, which somehow remain intact even though that you know there's you know not so much of a, a an inch of flesh left of the rest of his body, but somehow his his jaws <laughs> remain intact. And that you know and that that was supposed to be a really cool shot. It's like oh. Come on, really? Come on now. Yeah, it is piss poor. I was hoping for a good bad sort of time, and it was a real difficult watch. Scenes would begin and end without any sort of determination or point. They would just, well, we ran out of uh, ma- you know film in the magazine. I-, I guess we should stop filming this scene. There's just no point to any of it. And it just goes on and on and on. And the the shark attack scenes don't work. The non-shark attack scenes really don't work. <laughs> the dolphins make you hate dolphins. And that is hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> Who hates dolphins? I do. <laughs> I have. <laughs> After watching Jaws 3D, I did for a little while. Like, they don't come off well, and they're supposed to be the heroes in this fucking thing. Like, the the amount of people who have done better, Dennis Quaid, Bess Armstrong, Leah Thompson, Louis Gossett Jr., Simon McCorkendale, Simon McCorkendale's weird Australian man, <laughs> who is just always at his flank with a mustache treating everyone else like shit. Maybe his boyfriend? Possibly. I mean, maybe he seems a little. He seems a little uh, devastated when uh, when when he's killed. So, well, that's his his ticket. Well, that's so, true. That's true. It's fucking deplorable. And the, to add insult to injury, what we could have had was Jaws three people zero. <laughs> uh, John Hughes wrote it. Oh God! With and Maddie Simmons from National Lampoon also took a swing at it and uh then it was going to be directed uh by joe dante oh my god so it could have been like like almost like a gremlins type of thing then that gremlins was what he ended up doing because that fell through so in one standpoint i'm glad we got gremlins but on the other i would murder to see this movie with these people at the height of their powers to do this at that moment in time and we're never going to get it back but hey there's always jaws the revenge (laughs) oh my god where uh, a housewife goes to an island to get over the death of her husband by having sex with maybe maybe not a coke runner (laughs) hoagie kind of comes off like he's running drugs I get that. I, I get that impression. Next, in August 1983, uh, one that I, the only one of these that I have never seen. I'm not sure if anybody has ever seen it. It is The Man Who Wasn't There. It was the only one of these, uh, notable as being the only one of these movies in the 3D craze that was neither uh, a horror movie or a, uh, like a, or a sci-fi movie. It mm. was basically your, your standard invisible man comedy starring steve gutenberg oh no uh, yes uh the, the the steve gutenberg uh pre-police academy i believe uh post diner 
Wait a um, second, so Jeffrey like, Tambor is in this? Jeffrey Tambor. Jeffrey Tambor took a long time to find his career. He was in a lot of garbage, but the the one thing I, I, I do so enjoy about the man who wasn't there is the tagline on the poster. And and this took an incredible amount of, of thought from the uh, the publicity department. It was being invisible gets you into spy rings, diplomatic circles, and the girls' locker room. <laughs> Sexual assault is fun. Yeah, I was gonna say this was the Porky's era when you know horny young dudes committing misdemeanors by secretly peeping at naked young women was the height of comedy. But I had to ask, Steve Gutenberg would have been in his mid twenties at this point. What girls' locker room is he sneaking into? You know, a professional girls' locker room. A professional girls' locker room. <laughs> whatever the whatever the precursor to the WNBA was, he was sneaking into there. I mean, you, I'll be charitable and say maybe college. I don't know if colleges. I guess they have communal shower rooms. I don't know. I've never. I did not go away for college. But yeah, I I do so enjoy the yeah. What what would you do if you were invisible? Eh eh. Yeah yeah. We we're you're a pervert. We know. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen this movie. I don't know anybody who's seen it. Um, it seems unremarkable in every possible way. Yeah, apparently. I guess this was. Like Miguel Ferrer's first movie was William Forsyth's first movie. Lisa Langlois is in this. Uh, I uh, Michael Enzyme. And I guess it was produced by Frank Mancuso Jr., who was the man behind the Friday the 13th series in particular, taking the executive producer reins for Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D. So to, this must have been... That, raking in that sweet 3D money. Yeah, he must have made some sort of deal with the devil... Uh, with whoever was providing the 3D technology. And they're like, all right, we'll make two movies. We'll do this Friday the 13th one, and we'll make another one, an Invisible Man one. That way, shoes and underwear can fly out at the audience. <laughs> that poster is horrific, and it has two taglines. The second is, the funniest thing you've never seen, which I'm almost okay with. It, that that should have been the top one. That's accurate, because I've never seen it. Yeah. Following that, also in August 1983, a, a banner month and year for uh, shitty movies is Metal Storm, the destruction Storm. of Jared Sin. This is another Charles Band joint. Um, a <laughs> pretty, pretty blatant ripoff of The Road Warrior. Pretty much notable only as uh, a starring role for Richard Mull. Mm -hmm. uh, who, as per Wikipedia, uh, liked the look of ha having... He shaved his head for the role and liked it so much that he kept it when he auditioned to play Bull on Night Court, um, one of the greatest TV shows of all time, and obviously a huge upgrade from Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin. Because, yeah, when you, have a, you, you, when you star in a movie with that title, your career only goes way up or way down. There is no parallel to starring in a movie called Metal Storm. No, no one can maintain that level of quality for very long. They, no. Either you move along or everyone else does. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I got your all you're missing is a little kid, you know, running around and, you know, growling like a wolverine. That's that's <laughs> all you're missing from this movie. Um <laughs> 
So, uh, that being said, we move on to the coffin. Yeah, I'm mixing my metaphors. The nail in the coffin of Mm -hmm. uh, the 80s 3D boom. uh, November 1983's Amityville 3D. Oh my god. Until you said this right now, I had forgotten its its existence. I have seen this movie more times than I am comfortable saying. Uh, not because it was good or anything, just because it was constantly on cable in the mid-80s. It was every other day some channel was running Amityville 3D. It must have cost them $20 and a, and a carton of Newports to get the rights to to <laughs> run this on HBO and cinema. The Again, uh, the, the only notable thing that could be said about this movie is uh, it is the film debut of Meg Ryan. They couldn't, they, they were playing around because they could not mention the Lutzes because uh, George Lutz, wanting to ride that money train all by himself, was uh, starting to sue anybody that tried to capitalize on the name. Uh, and, and this has got a surprisingly quality cast for such a piece of shit. I it's, mean, this this is Tony a cast, Roberts, uh, Tess Harper, yeah, it's it, Candy Clark. Probably my favorite aspect of it is that instead of you, know, where in the first movie they had the uh, the big, basically open hole full of black slime that 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 George Lutz falls into while he's mm-hmm. trying to escape from the house, which is pretty effective. In this one, it looks like a a, a haunted jacuzzi. <laughs> It's like basically, it's a jacuzzi. It, it really is. It's 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 it, bubbling. Yeah, it's and a bubbling it's, clear pool that things just rise out of. I mean, it that is the if you're gonna watch one sequence, don't make it the elevator sequence of Candy Clark. Make it the scene right at the very end where the scientist who's monitoring this crazy haunting gets right up close to that Satan's jacuzzi. <laughs> And a demon pops out of it, st- and again, fireball out of his mouth, melts half this guy's face, a la the Crazy Four Crowns movie. And then he gets one wide eye, screams, and then the demon drags him in the jacuzzi for a soak or something. And he, and he does the whole, he does the whole, get out of here, save yourself, while he's yeah. being dragged into the jacuzzi. It's, it's hilarious it was following up amityville 2 which is fucking crazy i i very much hope we get to that for an episode or two because there is a lot to unpack with amityville 2 you know i mean it's these kind of things work a little better when the family seems kind of normal you know poltergeist is a really nice family and it's it's kind of awful to see these things happen to them but no i mean the family in amityville too i mean the dad's smacking you know, burt, burt young smacking the kids around from you yeah. know the minute they get in the house and you know the, the 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 brothers eyeing the sister like like she's a platter full of chicken fried steak and and you know he's going to her room tell her to take her shirt off yeah, she's totally cool with that and and it's like again this is like stuff this is like the first night they're in the house these things are happening really really gross she has a doll in that and i freeze-framed it uh the night i was watching it on mgm hd and it's in leather bondage gear and it's just in the background i I just every part (laughs) of it is sleazy as fuck it's just gross and then the second half of it becomes this legal thriller 
about how to unpossess this murderer who shot up his family and his sister who he was sleeping with and then kind of brushes off and gives her the cold shoulder. And I don't know who to feel worse for. It's all gross as fuck. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I think with, yeah, so I think with Amityville three, they were just, they were, you know, well, we have to tone this down a little bit and they, and they, they toned it down to the point where it was, it was pretty much almost TV movie quality. And as far as like the, the, the quote unquote scare factor and and the special effects and, and it's almost charming in, in, in how goofy and cheesy it is. And I, I just, I, I almost want to like it, but but I'm not quite there yet. No, I think it has its moments. It's just the whole doesn't quite uh, work as much as the... The highs are really high, but the lows are so fucking low. Okay, well, I, this is great. Because now, after this this episode, next week, we are starting up with Friday the 13th part 3D and we're going to get into every single detail about it in our first episode tell your friends tell your enemies because the first two characters we meet in this fucking movie you have to see to believe I promise you it is worth the watch all right Gina where can people find you on the internet I write about 70s and 80s television at tuneintonight.wordpress.com. Excellent. Wonderful. Hey, do you want to talk to us about something? You know you can on Twitter, at KillByKillPod. And our email is KillByKillPod at gmail.com. Please reach out to us and tell us what you think. Did we miss a 3D movie that you want us to talk about? Or, or some sort of element about 3D that you have an insight on? Let us know. All right, that has been Kill by Kill. We'll be back to our regular schedule. uh, Character assassination starting next week. And for Gina and myself, bye-bye. Bye. Kill by Kill is produced by We Write Good and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Friday the 13th is owned by Paramount Pictures, Jason is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill logo was designed by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.